All right. Move him to listening and move David to talking. You made it. Hey, um, can you hear I me? I can. Ah, okay. Hallelujah. Um, this was driving me nuts. I haven't used Skype in ages, so forgive my retardation here. Now, that's three <laughs> debating points right there. And since it's only out of two, uh, the debate's over. No, go on. <laughs> um, well, I guess uh, we're here to debate, uh, you know, Ron Paul and the pros and cons of voting for him. I don't tend to think of it that way. I tend to think of it more of, you know, is it right or wrong? But, um, and I, I, as we're debating this on the boards, uh, methodology came up, and that to me seems like the most important point here because that's where um, several of the disagreements stem from, both in terms of what Ron Paul does, uh, well, actually mainly in terms of that, um, the other disagreements stem from, um, I suppose, like reasoning starting from the non-aggression axiom and moving forward to what that means in terms of uh, applications to the real world. So I don't know what we want, what we want to start with. Well, um, I think if you want to start with defining methodology or whatever it is that uh, your thoughts are, it's totally fine with me. Okay, well... Um, the methodological issue that um, stuck out to me was, well, basically in the question you asked, which is, um, how has Ron Paul reduced spending in his own district? Um, that is, like, before and after Ron Paul, what's spending before, what's after, and someone posted a um, some kind of statistic with uh, spending on an annual basis, and there were some issues with the data at the last year. Um, once you correct it for that, there didn't seem to be much difference from the beginning to the end. Um, so, like, my concern here is that in this is, I'm, I've been, my background training is in the scientific method, um, and that's perfectly fine. You can do that in natural sciences where you can have experiments and control for variables, but in social sciences, um, particularly in economics, you can't control for variables because there's always something that is different and you can't do experiments on people. I know the Nazis did, but, um, you know, we libertarians don't do that kind of thing. So, um, the issue is, like, the way I think about it is you have to ask um, Ceteris Paribus, um, how, how would things be without Ron Paul? And some people pointed out that, you know, he's one um, congressman representative out of uh, over 400 or however many there are. He's, you know, and he's usually outvoted something 300, 400, something to one or whatever it is. So, you know, that that's obviously an issue. Yes, um, he is not... Uh, stopped a lot of statism in the Congress because he is outnumbered so greatly. But what I would say is that um, you can at least have, say that, you know, things are slightly better off with him there than without him in his home district because, for example, he's not lobbying for um, pork or, you know, federal spending in his district, whereas someone else in his place most likely would be. So that's where I would, I would start coming at it from that issue. That's that's the practical kind of thing. And this is... This is um, it gets to the issue of methodology, which is basically I criticize the application of the scientific method to economics. I think you need to you need to use praxeology in the scientific in in the social sciences, particularly economics, um, but anything else dealing with with human action in that kind of a context where you cannot control variables. I don't think you can use a scientific method because that requires controlling variables. Okay, so if I understand correctly, you're saying that. Ron Paul's district that the fact that uh, that you could say that his district is better off because he's not lobbying for pork, whereas other people would be. Is that is that correct? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I can't say, you know, absolutely that other people wouldn't be because it's conceivable that, you know, um, whoever else would be there also might not be. 
Um, it could be this district just happens to be a district where, you know, they like libertarian-leaning guys. And if it wasn't him, it would be someone else. Um, but I don't see anyone else in Congress who is, is as uh, consistent as him on these kinds of issues. Now, do you think, um, sorry, do you think that government spending as a whole has gone down because Ron Paul is not lobbying for uh, pork? Um, I mean, I think that's, that's arguable. Um, that, well, actually, see, has it gone down as a whole? No, because obviously it hasn't gone down since he's been, um, you know, a representative. But it hasn't I mean, gone. as far as I understand it, and I'm no expert on, on how all of this, you know, I've watched a couple of West Wings, and that's my, that's my education on the political system in the U.S. But my understanding would be something like this, that it's a zero-sum game, right? So whatever Ron Paul doesn't get, so he doesn't get some $100 million pork for his district, it's probably closer to a million or 10 million or whatever, but that money doesn't then get not spent. It just goes to somebody else, right? Like if this guy is not lobbying for his district, then it simply goes to some other uh, district. That would be how it works, right? Um, I mean, I would probably agree with that in kind of in the short run because, um, you know, they have a certain amount of money that they've taken in through taxes and, um, and borrowing and inflation, and that's going to be divided up some, some way. Um, and I guess even if someone doesn't spend it, it's going to just be um, put away for future spending or whatever. But in terms of the effect on how much they're actually going to try to take in, in terms of you know taxes, inflation, and uh, debt, I, I do think in the future it has an impact on you know what they're going to be taking in and then splitting up again. And also, I mean, it's you know the, the lobbyists not visiting him. Um, you know, they're I guess that, that kind of goes to that they're not lobbying for that spending of pork. And that doesn't get reflected, therefore, back up to the federal level, um, where they then, you know, have justification for raising more tax, raising more taxes and whatnot. So you think that the the taxes that are raised are generated by the pork requirements, or is the money just printed and then handed out like candy? Oh, I, I don't think that they're purely raised by the pork requirements. And that's, I'm just thinking, I'm just saying that's one contributing factor. That you know, the more different uh, lobbying groups have their interests there. Um, you know, the, the more uh, incentive there is for this, the taxation and inflation, which is even worse, to go up. Um, but certainly there's, you know, there's other, um, you know, causes for that. I mean, actually, you know, like a, a lot of, you know, the, the spending, I would, I would have to say probably most of the spending, at least from my rough imagination, has to be from the war or, you know, current U.S. war. Um, and there's not really a, uh, a lobbying group for war. It's just kind of under the deal tables and whatnot. You know, no one gets together and says, yes, we're a pro-war group, um, but companies have kind of, um, you know, behind-the-scene deals going on there. Well, I mean, I think Boeing and Lockheed and companies like that have pretty strong representation in, in the U.S. But I'm just, and I'm just, I don't want to nitpick at everything. I'm just generally trying to understand the thinking because it would seem to me that, that Ron Paul's district is poorer than it would be, like, then, then it would be if he was getting money, because they're all paying money to the federal government, right? So if he's not getting back as much in pork as they're paying to the federal government, then they're net poorer because of Ron Paul, and some other guy is net richer, right? So the fact that he's not lobbying for pork is simply increasing the amount of pork that can go to somebody else. Um, in, in the, you know, yeah, in the short, in the immediate run, yes, um, because there's just, he's not grabbing that part of the pie, and, um, you know, it's going to, it's going to someone else, but in, you know, in the long run, like, like I said, that does not reflect, um, you know, his not lobbying for pork doesn't, 
means that it's not going to be reflected back um, in terms of you know a requirement for more revenue generation on the part of the government. Again, um, assuming, but I mean, you know, full market. I'm sorry. Go well, ahead. It's just that's assuming that the government is uh, is not going to just make money in order to 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 give money, right? Because I think, I mean, I just wanted to to understand when you said that his district is better off because he's not lobbying for pork. I think from a purely economic standpoint, given that they have to pay the federal taxes, but they're not getting the pork back. In other words, they're giving the money to the hitman, but they're not getting any goodies back. I think that it's a net loss to his home district. I mean, just economically, without the ethics, or because the ethics are all horribly complicated, but just economically, his home district would be worse off if he doesn't lobby for pork because they're paying the federal money without receiving the, uh, the pork back. Um, just economically, I mean, curse, like on a cursory analysis, I have to agree with that. Though, I mean, they, they have to know this because, um, you know, this is his consistent policy and, you know, they've elected him many times over again. I don't know how, how many terms he's had, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess I, w I would have to agree with that without thinking about it any further. I mean, I'd have to think about it a little bit. To, um, I, I tend to think that, you know, um, ethical actions always result, not always, but tend to result in um, a, uh, you know, a better outcome. So... Although it's you know debatable you know is it ethical or not to try to get um, what was taken from you in one way back um, or whatnot. So I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree with that. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm sorry to have interrupted you there. Uh, when I started off, and I'll because I'm going to cut all of the earlier part of people trying to learn uh, English on my dime. Um, I'm going to cut that earlier stuff. So as far as I understand it, and I'll just very very briefly go over what I consider the pro Ron Paul positions, and then you can. Let me know if I'm totally off the mark, just so you know we understand it's not on the same page. As far as I understand, sure. the pro-Ron Paul position is really centered around a couple of major issues. The first is that uh, it's getting the message out, right? Somebody out there saying that the income tax should be abolished. Somebody out there saying that um, uh, that the um, the prescription drug program should be abolished. Uh, somebody who's talking about the constitutionality uh, and returning government back to its constitutional roots. It's generating a lot of debate and bringing ideas into the social sphere that would not otherwise be there. And so to go and uh, uh, and support this guy in whatever way that you can is really helping in getting the message out. And of course, myself, Steph, uh, I got a lot of uh, my uh, education on war from another presidential candidate, our good friend, the late Harry Brown. So for me to say, well, it's bad to support a presidential candidate when I got a good deal of my political and particularly military education from uh, from Harry Brown would seem rather churlish. And secondly, of course, I mean, I don't think that anyone goes to support Ron Paul. With may, may, may I interrupt you there sure. for just a second? Um, I, I do agree with that, that. Yeah, that is one of the issues. But I would just note that I don't think it would be hypocritical of you to to um, to say we shouldn't support uh, any kind of politician just because you happen to get your education on war from uh, Harry Brown. I, I um, realize that he's a great guy um, and certainly has a lot of respect. Um, but, I mean, you know, because I got my, my education from the government um, at least, you know, until the end of high school. So, But I still say we should get rid of government school. Right. Now, that's, I, I use the word churlish, which just means not exactly hypocritical, oh. but just kind of like not, not exactly grateful, I guess you could say. Uh, oh, okay, okay. All but right. uh, and another aspect as well, which is more around the particular voting for Ron Paul, uh, is that uh, nobody votes for Ron Paul really with the idea that he's going to achieve 
the nomination or that if he achieves the nomination, he's going to achieve the presidency or if he achieves the presidency, that he's going to be able to return the government to its constitutional roots. I mean, I don't think anybody uh, who's not currently mowing down, you know, fistfuls of ecstasy is really thinking that that is going to be the sequence. Like, I vote for this guy. Uh, he goes all the way. He gets in. He uses his veto power. There's no two-thirds override from Congress, and he returns, you know, within my lifetime or within a term or two. Uh, the government back. I don't think that's really people's thoughts, but I think what they do say is that if I vote for this guy, then I'm sort of putting a stake in the ground and sending a message saying, look, I'm really interested in smaller government. So if uh, if Ron Paul, say, gets 20% of the nomination votes, or you know, if he became a presidential candidate, if he got 20 or 30 or 40% of the vote, then the other politicians being the, <laughs> you know, the sheep in the sense that they are, would simply line up behind that and would start to figure out, they'd all fall over themselves, figuring out how to please the voters and make government smaller. So it's really around trying to create momentum wherein we can change the political discourse rather from how government should become bigger to how government should become smaller. And that's like, it's like turning a super tanker almost by blowing on the bow. Right? I mean, it takes a long time. But if you can send a message through popular uh, votes, which is really the only referendum in a sense that you have in America, if you can send a message by voting for somebody to make government smaller, then you are doing something pretty practical to begin to change the debate about what the politicians perceive the voters as wanting. Because once politicians, all they see is, you know, they don't meet individual voters, really, at least not in any substantive way. All they see is people donating money to them in order to get favors or lobbyists or everybody who wants more, more, more. But if a lot of people vote for a small government candidate, then the politicians will hear a growing cacophony of less, 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 which will change the debate to some degree within the country. Um, I, yeah, I think that um, that certainly it sounds very um, uh, momentous challenge, but I mean, um, that, that's the hope at least. Um, the, the extent at which that can be achieved is questionable. Um, sure. you know, some libertarians, you know, think that, uh, some anarcho-capitalist libertarians, that I, I won't get into the definition unless you libertarian versus anarcho-capitalist. I think that the strict sense of libertarian is the same thing as anarcho-capitalist. But in, in any event, some of them think that the only way you can ever achieve anarcho-capitalism is by basically some kind of collapse, of uh, total collapse of government. That's, um, I believe that's Hans Hoppe's position by and large. Well, not, not entirely because he, he does try to influence um, the Prince of Liechtenstein, but um, Sorry, he tends to have that kind of a pessimistic, pessimistic outlook. I, I hope, you know, you, you would hope that um, you know, anarcho-capitalism does not have to arise. Anarcho-capitalism doesn't have to arise through the ashes of civilization um, being ruined. But you know, um, yeah, certainly it's it's a, a difficult task to get the those in the government um, to try to realize that um, you know certainly they're never going to be anarcho-capitalist. Um, it's not not in this environment. Ron Paul isn't even anarcho-capitalist. But just to get them to, um, you know, abandon uh, interventionist ideas on, on, in general is going to be a momentous challenge. Um, so, yeah. But, I mean, let's just say that, you know, um, that this, this whole idea that, you know, Ryan Paul is going to turn things around, you know, and it's slowly going to, you know, kind of uh, build up. Let's just say that none of that happens and that all it is is just kind of like a blip on the, on the radar of... Um, you know, the increasing statism that might be happening over the next 200 years or whatever. Um, at the very least, 
you know, like uh, getting out of out of Iraq would uh, save, you know, um, thousands of lives. And, um, you know, in my mind, that's a good thing. And any other, you know, reduction in the initiation of aggression, even if it doesn't result in the ultimate, um, you know, elimination of systematic initiation of aggression, is a good thing. Right. So then the idea is that uh, if if there's enough people who who if ten percent of people vote for Ron Paul, but a hundred percent of those ten percent say it's entirely because we're in Iraq, then that's kind of like a little mini referendum on Iraq, which might propel people to get the um, uh, to get the uh, the troops out of Iraq, which would save some lives. So there's there's kind of like a practical uh, aspect of this, which is let's let's save lives now rather than waiting for a future that may or may not come where ideals can be enacted in a more consistent way. Yeah, that, that's basically the idea. I mean, um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's just, I, 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 from my point of view, that comes straight from the non-aggression axiom um, in that, uh, you know, it's not okay, you know, it wouldn't, I said this in the board, you know, it wouldn't be okay to um, say if the only way we could get anarcho-capitalism would be to, you know, beat up someone that that would not be justified, and that doesn't exactly doesn't follow obviously from that. But from my point of view, um, it seems that you know, uh, any initiation of aggression that can be stopped, we ought to try to stop it. Um, you know that that's but provided that we don't actually initiate aggression in doing such. Right, 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 of course, right. I mean, and of course, I, I would certainly never argue that the simple act of writing a ballot and stuffing it in a box is the initiation of aggression. For sure, and I think you would agree with this, though, of course, you can tell me if you don't, for sure, it is supporting the initiation of aggression because the government, whether it's less, right, whether it's less, it's still supporting the initiation of aggression. Uh, and, and I think that would um, be where, where, the, um, where the parts a little bit divide, if that makes sense. Do you you mean the the act of voting itself is supporting the initiation of aggression? That that's your your argument. Well, for sure. I mean, because you're saying to Ron Paul that you should use the guns, right? You you saying to Ron Paul you should have the right to initiate the use of force, or I'm I'm giving well, you yeah. my support in your right to initiate the use of force because he can't interrogate you personally, right? Like he doesn't know that you're just voting for the lesser of two evils, right? He, all he's going to know is that you support him having the right to initiate the use of force, which he himself um, desires, right? I mean, he wants to be able to initiate the use of force, such as, you know, ejecting 10 to 14 million uh, people from the states who have come across from Mexico. He supported this border security fence and so on, right? So he, I mean, and I'm not saying he's a bad guy or anything. I'm just sort of looking at some of the policies. And But you're definitely saying, by putting the ballot in, that you support the initiation of the use of aggression. You just support it less than some other guy who wants to do even more. Oh, you support it more than some other people uh, do it more. I, I mean, that, that's one, that's certainly one possible interpretation of it, and I think many people who vote, um, you know, that's in their head that, you know, yes, uh, this is the guy that they want to be commanding the military and deciding who to invade. Um, but I would refer to, um, let me think, I believe it was uh, Spooner, um, No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority, um, and uh, he said, he basically argued that voting is not either the initiation of aggression or supporting such, but it, it's an act of, uh, it can be interpreted as an act of self-defense. Obviously, you know, uh, for some people it's more an act of uh, off offense, I mean, that is offensive. The people who, for example, um, are going to be voting for McCain 
And I think all of anyone, um, McCain, or actually I meant to say Giuliani, who is much worse than McCain, but the people who are voting for these kinds of guys are obviously war hawks, and, um, you know, they want us to be over there in Iraq and, um, you know, uh, keeping those terrorists in line, so to speak, and bombing them into the ground and controlling that country. So it's not always, you know, the, the self-defense to vote, but it certainly can be seen as um, an act of self-defense. In, insofar as you're going to contract with somebody who's a lesser thug in order to, and again, I'm not trying to characterize Ron Paul as a thug, I'm just working in the abstract here, and we'll keep it out of the immediate political realm if that's all right with you, but in the way that some big thug is coming down the street, so you give a thug some money to uh, aggress again and hope that, you know, give him a gun or something and say, you protect me against the bigger thug, is that sort of the, the, the metaphor? I would say that that could be, yes, um, you know, that that could be an app metaphor, provided that the lesser thug was the only option you had, and you didn't have the option to say, you know, run away or, um, you know, deal with it yourself or put up a fence or, uh, you know, hire a, a defense agency to deal with you. I mean, to deal with um, criminals on your behalf, that is. Right, right. But, of course, when it comes to voting, you do have an option, right? I mean, you don't have to vote. You can uh, do a lot of other things which are either pro-liberty or not or whatever, right? But you don't you don't have to vote, oh. right? The guy's not. I mean, the guy's not coming down your street to get you, right? I mean, this is a political situation, wherein your vote. Oh, is sure. oh, sure. Sorry, go ahead. Sure. Sorry. Well, sure. Yeah, you don't you don't have to vote. Um, and but whether you vote or not, I mean, it seems you know, at least to me, almost certain um, that you know, the some guy is going to be there um, as president, you know. And uh, unfortunately, even though I have some hope for Ron Paul, it does seem like it's going to be um, a war hawkish type. So, you know, I, I guess I, I shouldn't say it's your only option. That's, you know, that's one option. And, um, you know, voting doesn't take a lot of time. But um, it's kind of a, it seems like an issue of, um, you know, strategy. Do you think this is the best or, you know, is the worthwhile way to try to defend yourself um, Maybe it's a long shot, but it doesn't cost that much to do. So, you know, do you do it or do you ignore this totally and focus purely on the, the intellectual landscape, so to speak? I, I actually misspoke earlier when I said that uh, Rockwell supported voting because he uh, personally doesn't vote. I read that on, um, on an interview, a great interview with Rockwell. It's on LRC. It has to do with um, the, the war issue. I can't remember exactly um, what it's called. But he, he he'd said that he, you know, likes Ron Paul and would much prefer him to be the, um, you know, president, but that he personally does not um, vote. And um, he said, one thing that he mentioned, I'm sorry, go ahead, Seth. Say that in that article, it was quite striking. I mean, I think specifically he mentioned that Ron Paul is not running for president. He's running against the presidency as it now is understood. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that, that that's yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it because uh, the presidency, as it as it is now understood, is um, a very different thing than probably what um, you know. And again, I would criticize Ron Paul on this for the idea that there should be a presidency, but it's it's very different from what the presidency used to be. Um, it's it's you know much much more powerful um, because effectively the Congress has um, given the presidency additional powers that it didn't had. They didn't have, I should say, um, and that 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 go, that's a, a history of precedence there. I think part of it starts with Andrew Jackson, um, 
when he, he smashed the central banks. Um, but uh, that set a precedent for a centralized power in the presidency. So, yeah, the, the, he is, in a sense, running against the presidency as it is now understood, um, at least in, you know, by, the, by most politicians, by the president himself, and by most people because it's, it's almost assumed to be a, dictate, a dictatorial position. Right, right. Now, I would say, though, that, I mean, I, again, I'm pretty down on the scientific method as well, and I really do try to work empirically so that you don't end up reinventing the wheel all the time. And one of the issues that I have with this idea of voting, and, I mean, when, I, when there's a vote in Canada, I go and spoil my ballot. I just write down that none of these people are morally entitled to, to represent me. Right? And, of course, if all the voters in the world did that, right, there would be something that would be quite striking in the political process, right? So, I mean, I'm... I'm sorry, you go on, you go on what, your ballot? I, I didn't understand oh, that. Oh, I just uh, invalidate the ballot. What I do is I write, I spoil the ballot deliberately, right? Uh, I don't suck ah, the I name see. and I just... So you, you cast it and you, write, you, you um, deface it or something like that. Well, I just write that nobody, none of these people are enti- morally entitled to represent me. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, they just look at that and throw it out, right? But, I mean... There's something that you can do to to reject the political process as a whole that's not voting for somebody who wants to use less force in a different direction. Because I think it's one one of the arguments that I've tried to make is that if we look at, and I'm going to cast the net wider than you may perhaps, and say that going back to the classical liberals of the 19th century, uh, and if you want, go in 221 years back to the founding of the republic, people have tried to restrain government through democracy, through voting, through political action, and so on. And um, empirically, it's been a complete... Like, you couldn't have a worse situation. Like, empirically, you could not have a worse result from a group of people for five to seven generations who've been trying to restrain the growth of the government through political means. That the result has been a government that is staggeringly larger because of the fertility of the economy has become staggeringly larger than any government in history, and also because capitalism produces the technology to create weapons of mass destruction, you have, after five to seven generations of very, very bright, I mean, people whose intellect like <laughs> dwarfs the mind for sure, you've had very, very bright people working very, very hard to try to restrain the growth of the state through participation in the political process. And the end result of that has not been that the state has is, is, is gotten smaller. It's not been that the state has remained the same size. It's not been that the state has only grown a little bit. It's that what has been produced is the greatest and most terrifying and most gigantuan state uh, in the history of the planet. So that's where some of my skepticism arises, just looking at what has been... I mean, I have a theory as to why that's the case, which we don't have to get into if you don't want to, because I'm certainly willing to hear arguments for a different uh, interpretation of that, but the political process has been tried by people interested in smaller government for centuries. And we have the largest conceivable and most violent and destructive government uh, in the history of the planet. So for me, the political process, the political approach uh, has not produced, uh, I mean, it's produced the exact opposite, I think, of what was desired. And I don't think there's too many of the classical liberals who, if they could see the state now, would disagree with that. And so when I look at participation in the political process and the long view of what it's actually produced, it seems to me that politi- participation in the political process, which has been the default for libertarians, uh, is uh, has just produced this complete gigantuan, monster, violent, death-dealing state that can you know wipe out hundreds of thousands or millions of people at the push of a button. And 
I think that's beyond the worst nightmares of the people who wanted to reduce the state through political pro through the political process. And so that's my particular approach about doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I'm sort of looking at the last 150 years and saying, well, gosh, even if we throw all of the principles out the window and just say cause and effect, the political involvement in the political process uh, has not achieved any of the goals. In fact, it's achieved the exact opposite of the goals that the people intended. Um, but that's, yeah, certainly that empirical fact exists, but that's something that's open to interpretation. It's not, um, it's not per se evidence that it's useless to try to restrain the government. Um, see, I think that, that's where we get into the methodological um, difference, and I think that uh, you can't just um, say, you know, people, the classical liberals have been trying to restrain government for the past 200 years, and um, the result has been that government was, you know, 1% of the GDP back then, although that's a questionable way to, to measure things. But I'll just say government was, you know, relatively small back then, and today it is relatively enormous and all-encompassing. And therefore that, um, you know, that the attempt to restrain the government or even roll it back in some areas has, hasn't achieved anything. What you have to ask is, um, you know, how much worse would things be without, if the classical liberals ha hadn't been there? And I suppose that's not a precise enough question. Uh, you have to, because, um, you know, they were also acting intellectually, because what you're specifically disputing is not the classical liberals and their effect, but the way um, their strategy in terms of, you know, political uh, activism. So then what you have to ask is how much worse would things have been if they had not been there um, trying to reduce the size of government or prevent the further growth of it um, by the political means. And I would just give, you know, one example I gave it on the boards, which is uh, Ludwig von Mises in uh, Austria after World War I um, had, I, I don't know, he had some, um, a personal, not a personal relation, but he knew the, um, the king or the prince or whatever of uh, Austria, and he persuaded, um, or I'm probably not the king or prince, but prime minister, something like that, the, the leader of the country, and he persuaded him not to allow hyperinflation in uh, Austria. Um, so... That, that would just be one example that uh, I would cite where, you know, there was just an enormous uh, beneficial effect because of that, um, of Mises used the political means. Um, and, you know, Rothbard also used it, um, though he did everything else as well. I think that it's not an all or nothing question. Uh, almost all of the, the, the great classical liberals and, you know, Rothbard, the, the modern anarcho-capitalist, the political process was just one thing. They they did that, and they educated the public, and they participated in an intellectual debate with other um, so-called intellectuals. Um, so that was just one of their, you know, one of the things they did. Now, you know, I guess on the other hand, you can say, look, you know, these these men were, you know, if you look at what Rothbard did or what Mises did um, in terms of both educating the public and um, trying to educate some politicians and also having influence politically, um, you know, engaging in the political process when he could, and then also, you know, teaching, you know, being a mentor and uh, participating in the academic debate. There was a great debate in the 20s about socialism. Mises was the only, Mises and Hayek were the only ones who thought it couldn't work. So that was one thing he did. And you might be able to argue that, you know, the normal person cannot do that because you're talking about a genius here. And, you know, most of us are not geniuses, so we have to prioritize. Um, but I, I would argue it's, you know, individuals have to choose for themselves what they think is most effective.
Well, I don't think it's that subjective. You know, with all due respect, I think that that's just saying that there's no possibility of any right or wrong answers in the realm of effectiveness, right? Which, which to me would just say that then there's no possibility of causality between ideas, actions, and results, which to me would just not make sense at all. I think that uh, I would make the argument, and of course, if you want to say that for a short time in Austria, things were better, well, I'm sure that they were, right? And I'm sure that that was better. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, uh, you live in a system where there are other governments, right? So the fact that Austria didn't pursue hyperinflation was uh, one thing, right? But of course, Germany next door did pursue hyperinflation, which led to the invasion of Austria in 1938, subjugation under Nazi rule, and then a country that emerged from that destructiveness uh, and embraced socialism, as all the Western countries did, with them somewhat minor exception in terms of the degree for the USA in the post-war period. So, you know, it's fine to say, well, there was a short burst of, of benefit from what von Mises was able to achieve in Austria, but uh, unfortunately, uh, the fact that government still existed meant that they just got overrun by the Nazis, right? So, uh, and again, I mean, nobody's going to say that one argument or ten arguments or a million arguments is going to prevent something like Nazism. But I would certainly make the argument, and strongly though, you know, not necessarily with extreme precision because it's impossible in this realm, I would make the argument that if intellectuals as a whole eschewed, rejected, violently rejected political solutions, then we would be a whole lot better off than we would have been uh, since that they, they have taken this option of getting involved with the government and attempting to wrestle control of the use of force from politicians and, uh, and policemen and, and soldiers who are frankly a whole lot better equipped to use violence than most intellectuals are. I would say that it's the difference between trying to reform slavery and trying to abolish slavery. Right? If, you, if you say that, that slavery can be reformed, then you are implicitly saying that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with slavery. It just needs to be managed better. And if you, then all the people who feel uneasy about slavery have a place to go called let's reform it. Whereas if you say slavery is an unambiguous evil that needs to be wiped from the face of the earth, not through violence but through you know moral reasoning, then people don't have a comfortable place to sit where they can focus on just reforming and they don't have a place where they can dodge the kind of really core change that needs to occur within society to get this you know historical 100,000-year parasite off our necks called the state. I think that focusing on reforming the state gives people an easy out. It lets people waste and drain their lives in political energies, and it legitimizes the very power that we all know is morally evil because the state is centered around the initiation of the force. Of force. And by not taking that core moral stand and trying to work within the system, I think they just legitimized the system, and they gave people an out, which says, oh, the way that I'm going to work for uh, freedom is I'm going to go support Ron Paul, I'm going to vote for Ron Paul, rather than the state can never do any good, the state is evil incarnate, the state murders hundreds of millions of people, and it's responsible for 99.9% .9 of the non-biologically inflicted human misery in the world, and you can't reform this institution, you can't work from within it. I think that if the intellectuals had taken that stance, and you know it's easy in hindsight, because we have 150 years of a bloated state, I think that they would be, we would be far better off because there would be no wouldn't be this sort of weasley middle ground, not that I'm putting you there, but there wouldn't be this weasley middle ground where people say, well, I don't have to decide that the state is bad because I can work to reform it. Well, um, that's, you know, that's an interesting argument, and um, I'm sorry, I just kind of got to collect all of that in my head. Um, Want me to go over it again? Cause I don't 
No, no, I think I understand your argument. I, I um, certainly, you know, this this to me gets to the issue of um, Rothbard talked about this um, gradualism versus um, I, I forget what the other word was called, but extremism or radicalism, and um, this is something that uh, you know the the abolitionists dealt with when they were trying to get rid of slavery. Um, you know, is it you know, I think what um, Maybe Garrison uh, wrote that uh, if you aim, if you um, you know, if you aim for the immediate abolition of slavery, you will most likely get um, the gradual elimination of it. But if you aim for you know that that is, you'll get a gradual change. If you aim for and you know the the end goal and you know which is the elimination of evil or slavery, whatever it may be in a particular case, that you're going to probably get a, a gradual. Um, change, but if you aim for a gradual change in and of itself, you're going to get no change at all. Well, somebody else, and you know that somebody that, else that certainly is true. Said, I'm sorry, go well, ahead and somebody say. else said gradualism in theory is perpetuity in practice. Yes, exactly. That that's um that's what I, I think. I don't know if Rothbard was quoting someone else or if that was what he said himself. It may have been Garrison who said that. I'm not sure, but that that's yeah, that's a great quote. And um, yeah, certainly us anarcho-capitalists have to always keep in mind the ultimate end, which is not you know. To um, you know, to reduce the state, to to try to get uh, out of Iraq. That it's not just that; it's to actually eliminate the state. Um, you know, everywhere and, and across the entire world, um, all states. That's the ultimate end. Um, well, I shouldn't say it's the ultimate end. That's you know, because um, the non-aggression action is what it's all about. But if you you know follow that, and then you think of what should a, what could a legitimate um, society look like. That is the only legitimate, you know, conceivable legitimate society. So we can't, you know, lose sight of the ultimate end goal. But um, I would also say that any any step in the right direction, you know, ought to be applauded. And this is where, you know, Rothbard would make temporary alliances with the the old um, the old right and the new left, uh, depending on if they were good on a particular issue. Like right now, I believe Lou Rockwell is um, has combined forces with some leftists who are good on the war issue. Um, the idea being that you know any step in the right direction is a good thing. Now, what you what you are talking about is you know well what's the most effective thing? You know if the intellectuals had stayed entirely out of the political process, would we be better off? Um, I think you have to get to first what's the intellectual orientation, which is the typical intellectual orientation, um, at least now and and most likely and I believe in even in Mises' day as well and in the day of the classical liberals was very socialist. Um, the Austrians were our, the were the the lighting the leading lights of the of free market thought in economics, but they had com competing schools of thought which were very statist. I believe the historicists the historicists were very statist, and um, then after them there was the um, the the positivists, and they were you know there are actually some free market free marketeers in that school, but um, you know. A comp another competing statist regime in the more recently um, in the past century. So the issue is that because you know the vast vast majority of intellectuals are not in any way libertarian leaning, uh, libertarian or capitalist, or nothing like that. They're you know more likely to be um, communist leaning than libertarian leaning. So of course because they're involved in the political process, things get are much much worse. Now, I think what you, you might be arguing is a little bit more specific than that, is that if the classical liberals hadn't been involved in the political process at all, and instead it focused all of their efforts on um, 
thundering as you came the public state or something like that. I, I'll give you a two-second metaphor I, just just to clarify it because I know it was a long argument. The two-second metaphor is this: that uh, if if I tell you that your toothache can be cured by doing the shimmy dance, right, and you don't have to go to the dentist, your toothache can be cured by doing the shimmy dance, right, and and you do the shimmy dance, right, but your tooth is actually rotting, right, then. If you continue to do the shimmy dance, your your tooth is going to get worse and worse and worse, right? And then at some point, you're going to say to me, well, I'm doing the shimmy dance, but my tooth is just killing me. And then you say, well, yes, but imagine how much more it would be killing you if you didn't do the shimmy dance. Well, my argument is, if you didn't believe that the shimmy dance was going to cure your toothache, you'd go to the damn dentist and get it dealt with, right? And so by engaging in political action, which is not going to do anything other than give people an out from what they need to do, which is to go to the dentist of no state, so to speak, it is actually making things worse. Um, I don't think it's that clear cut that you know the, you can't do anything that's worthwhile in the political process. I mean, certainly, let's imagine if Ron Paul were elected president. I know that's quite a stretch, but um, you know he could um, you know he could pull the troops out of Iraq. He could um, try to he could veto a lot of legislation. Now, so I believe someone you know, other people were talking about how you know the Congress might align against him, but. You know, I, I don't think that um, even the statist Congress could align against him completely enough to, you know, make his veto worthless. That they have to over, they have to have a two-thirds majority to override a veto. So you know, he could you know veto a lot of statist legislation. There's a lot of things that you can do in the political process. Um, Rothbard talked about this in response to um, uh, Samuel L. Conkin's criticism of uh, any kind of participation in the political process. You know, you can you can get a sweeping change in the political process um, if you have a you know a broad enough uh, movement and you know conviction. So it's not it's not the case that you know that you know being involved in the political process is like a shimmy dance where it has absolutely no relation at all to the you know to what you're trying to get rid of, which is the initiation of aggression. Um, it can it can certainly reduce it. Um, sorry, can you, it's just, sorry, I think it's more... Because again, without sort of specific uh, blips in the radar, I have never seen a situation wherein the government has shrunk as a result of somebody who wants a shrink government going in. And of course, you think of people like, like Nixon, who went in on a fairly free market platform, who then enacted price controls. And then you look at people like, like uh, uh, Reagan, who um, Ron Paul uh, was one of the three people who nominated him. Um, Reagan goes in, you know, very well read in the Foundation for Economic Education and very well read in, uh, you know, the, the capitalist economics, uh, who just destroyed the deficit, like destroyed the economy with the deficit and federal funding, uh, federal spending grew by two thirds under Reagan, right? So I think that if you can think of an example other than, you know, when you demobilize a, an army at the end of a big war, if you can think of an example where somebody has come in and has been able to reduce the size of government or even sort of <laughs> reduce the growth to some significant degree. I just can't think of any examples, right? So I agree what you're saying. It sounds nice in theory, but the first thing that I'll always do when we're looking at historical things and using the past to predict the future, because if you don't look at the past, you can predict anything you want, right? And Ron Paul could ascend to heaven on the wings of an angel and bring back anarcho-capitalism in a bag. I mean, if you don't look at the past, then you can, and I'm not saying you're making up anything you want, but I just can't think of any examples where somebody has actually been able to do uh, what it is that you want Ron Paul to do or you think that it would be good if Ron Paul did or somehow could happen. And these people were doing, were trying to restrain government 
when there was no war, when the deficit wasn't $9 trillion, when the unfunded obligations were north of $40 trillion, and the, 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 um, the uh, dollar wasn't collapsing or at least taking heavy blows from the euro and the yen and so on. So when people had a far easier situation to manage, they were not able to even remotely reduce the size and scope and power of government. If we go back to the 19th century, the people who were against the founding of the central bank and then the eventual 1913 founding of the Fed, they had a much smaller government to deal with and a much less well-armed government to deal with. I mean, in the 19th century, a militia could take on the government. Right now, it's completely impossible. So if it never could happen when it was much easier, how on earth is it going to happen now that it's infinitely harder? Well, um, you know, how we just, you know, there are other examples of where, you know, um, people, individuals have been able to uh, roll back statism in significant ways. I mentioned Andrew Jackson uh, smashing the central bank, although that had, you know, some negative consequences in the long run in terms of setting a precedent, although that precedent had to be reinforced. You can't say that the precedent for you know, centralization of political power in the presidency is all Andrew Jackson's fault. I, I'm, just as a you know disclaimer here, I'm not saying Andrew Jackson was a great president or a great guy. Um, he murdered a lot of in, uh, Native Americans, um, so you know certainly um, you know not to the great example of a, a libertarian leading anything, but that was one um, you know good policy that he had. Now there was this, um, I believe it was centered around around Polk, President Polk. There was a series of uh, several presidents. It was, I think, two. Um, I'm not sure if it was one or two who got elected, but there was there was kind of a, an idea of um, going back to the old Jeffersonian um, idea. And uh, I think Polk was maybe it was Polk or Cleveland Grover Cleveland, who was in in this. And the idea was to get basically three um, Jeffersonians elected in a row, um, and uh, it went fairly well. Um, on the first president, on the first term, or the first presidency, but then I, something happened. Uh, either uh, the next guy, I think it may have, may have been Clover, was assassinated or shot or something. Like, I forget exactly what happened. Just barely into his presidency at all, and then it, it collapsed after that because um, you know there was the succession of um, they went to whoever was else automatically. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly I, I will not dispute what you said empirically, which is that. You know, um, it's difficult to find examples where, you know, the size of government actually shrinks because of the influence of intellectuals. That is difficult to find. That, I'm sorry. Um, you not know, not as just a the influence of intellectuals, the influence of anybody. I mean, and even the inter even the yeah, politicians I, that the intellectuals vote for, who want to reduce the size of government. And I mean, Reagan had the clearest mandate to reduce the size of government. And even George Bush said, "No, government is this is the problem, not the solution. I'm going to pursue a humble foreign policy, no nation building, blah blah blah." You're referring to Bush, um, but the second Bush, the yeah, second, that is right. So, uh, okay. just, just we, we can start referring to them as, as if they were kings, because you know, <laughs> right, right, Bush, Bush, Bushmark too. So, um, so I, I know what you're saying. Like, I mean, I think that there's a definitely. I understand the allure, and look, I mean, good heavens, wouldn't it be great if uh, political action could solve this problem? Because it would be clear cut. It would be something that would be a a, a plan of action that would be something we could all sink our teeth into. My, my concern, right, my concern is that we do actually have a toothache, and by doing the political dance, our toothache is just getting worse and worse and worse, and at some point, like, the longer we put it off, the worse it's going to be. 
And that's why, for me, there's urgency. Obviously, there's urgency for both of us, and we're both on the same side of the fence as far as wanting to reduce government, me to zero, you to zero, but we have different ways of approaching it. But my concern is that, I mean, there is an urgency at the moment that hasn't been around for a couple of generations, and that urgency is, I mean, the, the financial uh, house of cards is just so huge and windy and trembling that uh, we do have to act with fair rapidity. And so my concern, though, is that like the tooth is really rotting out, and if we continue to do the political dance, thinking, despite the evidence of everything that came before, that it's going to do something to reduce the size and power of the state, when in my view it's actually increasing, right? Libertarian or anarchist participation in the state legitimizes the state, gives people an out that, that makes them believe that political action will solve the problem, and historically it's just made the problem worse, or at least that would be a reasonable causality. And so the urgency is that I really want to do something different. And, of course, I spent 20 years racking my brain trying to come up with something that was going to be different, recognizing that what had gone before had not even remotely achieved the ends that were intended, right? Right. I mean, I don't think Murray Rothbard ever said, I'm doing this so that I can slow the growth of government down to, like, 10 times every 20 years' growth. I mean, that wasn't his stated intention, right? His stated intention was to arrest. He, he said something, like, um, along the lines of, you know, no one's going to... No one's going to, in Rothbard's question, no one's going to go to the barracks for the idea of reduced transaction costs, uh, you know, for a little bit more freedom. They want, you know, the idea of a lot more freedom. Right. So I... And that, that's, I think that's what you're getting at. Well, and, and my... Or whatever. Like, nobody's going to go to the barricades for, you know, Ron Paul saying, well, okay, it's still a shit sandwich, but there's not as much shit as the other sandwich. So, you know, that's going to be a great meal. I mean, I just don't think anyone's going to really get that juiced about that. But I think that if, if involvement in the political process is actually hurting rather than helping our cause, then that's one of the reasons why there is urgency for me in trying to make the case that there's a better approach, there's a different approach to that. And, of course, you know my approach is around introspection and my approach is around uh, grounding in philosophy and learning personal freedom within your own life, getting bad people out, getting good people in, becoming a real beacon uh, rather than getting involved in a political process which is sort of like, you know, that old thing, right? <laughs> if you wrestle uh, in shit with the pig, you both get dirty, but the pig likes it, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like a different situation for that. So that's my major concern, that if we keep doing the same stuff that's gone before, there's, I mean, if, if it didn't win 150 years ago, and it didn't win 100 years ago, and it didn't win 50 years ago, when it was much, much easier to win, right? There's just no way that it's going to win now, that the government is so much larger, so much more powerful, and people are so much more miseducated about the realities of the world they live in. Um, it's kind of a, a, a long, long one there, but uh, let me just briefly respond. And, you know, I mean, I don't think that, um, you know, it's really the libertarians or the anarcho-capitalists who participate in the political process that are giving people a way out. There's going to be, you know, whether or not, whatever we're doing, um, you know, that doesn't have anything to do, I, I don't think, with giving people a, a, um, a way out of saying, you know, either I believe in the state or I want to get rid of it altogether. Because whether or not, whatever, you know, you could take you and me and every other anarcho-capitalist in the entire world, which is not that many relative to the world's population, and, you know, we could all, all either be in the political process or all either not. And I don't think that's really going to make much of a difference at all on, uh, you know, whether or not people have feel that they have an out in terms of you know uh, a third way between the state and not, and you know not having a state um, whatever, whatever we do you know they're going to have that option and um, you know right now it seems like most people tend to I mean if, 
you know, this conversation was happening in um, among quote unquote normal people. That is, you know, just the majority of the population. Um, they would think that you and me were crazy um, for having the idea that we didn't need government. And um, you know, at, at most, you're well, not necessarily at most, but it depends on the person. But the typical person, you might convince them, you know, that you know maybe the government shouldn't be involved in this or that or whatever. And um, you know, that that's just about as much as you're going to get. Um, you know, so I, I don't think it's libertarians and anarcho-capitalists who are providing that that way out. Um, and then now the other thing I would say in response to um, you know the argument that yeah, you know, look, we've been doing this for you know 200 years, and the state is bigger than ever and worse than ever, and it has the power to you know destroy the world 10 times over again with all the nuclear weapons between the U.S. and Russia, and that's just the U.S. and Russia. Um, you know, so. You know, this this is kind of the argument is that this is kind of like um, the political process is kind of like a, a, a Jimmy dance or a, a rain dance or whatever. But you know, I mean, I don't think that is exactly correct. I think that um, it's more like um, well, let's let's do a slightly different analogy here, which is that you know we have a toothache and um, you know which I guess you could say is the state and um, you know. Um, uh, no matter who we elect, who is elected as president, uh, that toothache isn't going to go away. But um, you know, if if you know, if say Rudy Giuliani or McCain, or John McCain or Hillary Clinton, uh, those seem to be the leading candidates, are elected as president, then you know um, we're not just going to have a toothache. They're going to basically you know grab our jaw and tear it tear it off. Um, whereas if you know Ron Paul is elected president, um, well you know hopefully the toothache won't get any bigger. And um, you know, at least we can de we can delay um, the onset of uh, you know total collapse and disaster somewhat. And because look, you know, let's just say that you know, no one knows you know when this um, this wave of statism is going to cause you know collapse. Right now, the U.S. is heading in a fascist direction. You know, eventually there has to be a collapse as a result of that. You know, civilization will, will crumble and collapse. But just because that collapse happens doesn't mean that you know out of the ashes we're necessarily going to get anarcho-capitalism. There needs to be an ideological, um, a ground, a, a large ideological support for that to get to get that. You need to, you know, something. It's conceivable that something, you know, that you're not necessarily going to get something better arising out of the ashes of, um, you know, the destruction of civilization from statism. I'm sorry. Can I just? Uh, you might just get. A, uh, I'm so sorry. Sure, I'm so sure. sorry. And I just, I just want to put a bookmark here because I don't want to interrupt you, but. Uh, I think three or four times now you've said the destruction of civilization when the state collapses, and I don't think that would, I don't think that is quite the equation that I would make. But I don't want to interrupt you too much. We'll just bookmark that and come back. Oh, okay. Um, I, I see what you're saying. I, <laughs> I don't want to say that um, you know the collapse of the state is is you know that, as if you know the state being there is what's you know supporting civilization like you know like the the steel structure of a building. What I would you know I would say is that you know precisely because of the expanding size of the state, um, that's going to, you know, this is just all culture. I mean, it's going to lead in the direction of destroying all culture and civilization as the state expands further. And then at some point, you're going to have a collapse. Um, and it's just a total, you know, collapse. And of course, the state will collapse with it. And, you know, civilization, you know, will collapse as well to some extent. Well, I'm sorry to um, interrupt. We're going to stop here then, though. But would you say that if you were in Russia in 1980? Seven, that you would have tried to keep to keep the Soviet government going rather than have it collapse. No, no, of course, um, I, I I wouldn't say that. Um, 
but what I would say is that just because you know the Soviet government collapsed doesn't mean that something better is going to arise out of it. Because um, I mean, and in fact, some, you know, maybe something more, somewhat better arose out of it, but um, not you know certainly nothing approaching uh, libertarian society, uh, respect for private property rights. Not nothing close to that. Well, no, it's um, a lot closer than, than the previous government, though, right? I mean, you actually it's closer. Yeah, it's it's certainly closer than it was. Um, I guess you could say that. Yeah. But um, you know, the issue is, is there the ideological um, understanding and support there for freedom and also the, you know, the economic uh, know-how? Because um, you know, we can talk about ethical arguments all day long, and, you know, but there's a lot of people out there who, no matter what you say about ethics, um, they're, they're hopelessly grounded in a utilitarian mindset, and they just don't understand how the free market could do it in terms of um, you know, uh, providing for national defense or whatever it is. And yes, that, that is a, a problem of perspective because it's, I think, uh, I don't know if it's Robert Murphy or who, no, actually it's my friend Manuel Lohr who says that it's always like, you know, in Russia where they had the, you know, the government made shoes and then you say if there wasn't, uh, you know, shoe communism, how would the free market provide for shoes? And it's just a, you know, if you really think about that problem, it's a nightmare of a problem to think about. So of course people say, yes, we ought to have the government do it. Um, because they just can't imagine how it could get done, and and I can guarantee you that you know neither you or me could could um, you know write out a, spe a specification for how the free market makes shoes. There's just a thousand steps in there um, that all operate seamlessly because it's the free market. Well, sure, but I mean, um, but, I'm sorry to interrupt, but if the government if the government is producing shoes and the government runs out of money, then the government stops producing shoes, and then people see that the free market produces shoes. Right, you can teach people through that kind of example, right? So people couldn't imagine how the government could, how cell phones could be provided in Soviet Russia. But then, within six months of the collapse of communism, you've got an entire network of cell phone towers, and people are out there getting cell phones. And now they understand that, right? I'm not saying that Russia is a perfect society by any means, right? They've got a lot of bad history, but um, there's a way of showing people, which is after the collapse, um, they see the free market do the things that they never could imagine the free market doing before. And then they, you don't need to argue with them anymore. But as long as the state is still holding reality at bay, the intellectual arguments are, are hard to make, right? Or harder, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, um, people can only, in a sense, it's, it's difficult to imagine what you can't see. And uh, if people can't, uh, or, or anything similar, if you know, people can't make that kind of an anal analogical leap from one thing to another, it's difficult for them to imagine how the framework could, could you know, do something. Um, but, you know, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is that, you know, um, there's a lot of initiation of aggression that could be stopped in, in certain cases, not in, in general. Um, you know, when if, if the right guy is, quote unquote, the right guy is elected, that is, if someone who is, you know, like Ron Paul, broadly libertarian leaning, I'm not sure if I would say he's a minarchist like Mises was. Now, Mises, by the way, was kind of the borderline between minarchism and anarcho-capitalism. But, um, you know, so that there's a lot of initiation of aggression that could be stopped there, and that that has kind of a um, uh, a compounding effect. You know, because um, uh, any initiation of aggression, someone is harmed in some way. Maybe they're murdered. Uh, maybe they're just stolen from. But you know, in some way, um, either their their life is ended, or you know, their preferences are overrided, or overridden, I should say. And um, they can't do what whatever it is they're going to do if not from the initiation of aggression. So, you know, you could imagine that, you know, there's lots of people who, 
just because of wars. Um, let's just take that alone. Wars, and maybe um, I guess you could you could talk about the DDT ban as having you know uh, murdered uh, millions of people. That and um, and also then of course um, uh, democide. That is when governments murder their own people. Which you know actually there's been more of that more deaths from democide than from war. Um, you know, so just imagine if you know like you know if, if can any the extent to which that is reduced, you never know what kind of a person might um, might be allowed to develop if he weren't you know murdered or stolen from you know as much as he's stolen from or raped or whatever it happens. But instead, you know that person become gets the mind you know either they're not there or they have a statist mindset or they just didn't have the the time to devote to what might have been a pursuit of um, an understanding of liberty. Right. Uh, I guess I, I do understand. You could use John McCain. John McCain as an example. I mean, uh, um, he seems to truly believe in what he says with regards to, you know, this crazy war on terrorism and war on the Middle East. And that has something to do with the fact that he was uh, tortured brutally when he was captured in Vietnam. So, you know, you could imagine what would have, you know, or I can't exactly imagine, but you know, he probably would have been a better human being if not for the fact that he was tortured and his his his, his viewpoint was so perversely warped. Well, sure, sure, but I mean, I think that this, this is for me the the problem with starting midstream, right? Like, so when I have arguments with people about the war, they say, "Well, yes, but you know, we had to fight the Nazis, right?" But but that's sort of popping into 1939 and saying, "Well, what are we going to do now?" So my issue is that you're saying, "Well, if we get Ron Paul in, he's going to." Um, He's going to get to stop the war, and then fewer people will get killed, right? But the problem is that that's uh, after 150 years of involvement in the political process, we still have this war, and there are still hundreds of wars going on around the world, right? So that to me is the issue that you say, well, I need to involve myself in the political process so that I can reduce the number of people who are getting killed. But all these people are getting killed after hundreds of years of intellectuals' involvement in the political process, right? So you look at it backwards, at least from my perspective. Maybe I'm looking at it backwards. This is <laughs> my perspective. But what comes first is the involvement in the political process, which we know has been going on from freedom-loving libertarian intellectuals for hundreds of years, which has resulted in all these people getting killed. I mean, I'm not saying it's causal, right? I mean, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to win that argument unless we have a much longer debate. And even then, I'm, <laughs> I might not. But for sure, there's an enormous amount of effort put into trying to get involved in the political process to shape the ends, to control the guns of the government, to control the military, to control this violence. And people say, well, I want to do that so that I can reduce the amount of violence. But after 150 years, the violence keeps escalating, right? So I don't think that there's any reason to believe that it's going to stop the next step, right? 150 steps, 150 years we've been taking these steps to try and reduce the violence of government. And it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So then saying, well, I need to get control of government to reduce the violence. But the violence has been growing despite the fact that everyone in the libertarian movement, not everyone, but most people have been trying to get control of the government, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, that, 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 you know, yeah, again, I agree with that observation. But, but um, and you said you, you, don't, you didn't think you would win the causal argument there. I don't think, I hope you're not making a causal argument that, you know, the libertarians being, or classical liberals being involved in the government have caused that. What I mean, I would say is, look, let's just imagine if the classical liberals hadn't existed at all, because um, it's entirely conceivable that, you know, it was um, maybe a fortunate uh, byproduct of the fact that, you know, um, they began to understand uh, 
what was it, the, the key development in, in economics was um, the understanding of, uh, uh, you know, what, what makes a diamond, a diamond more valuable than bread, even though, you know, bread is more essential for life. That is the marginal utility. Right. Um, one of the, you know, most essential developments in economics. And, well, I guess maybe you shouldn't say it was chance because three guys developed it simultaneously. Um, only one of them had a, a really truly proper outlook who was Menger. Um, but, you know, let's just imagine they hadn't existed at all or they hadn't been involved in the government, you know, whatever, whichever alternate, you know, system you want to imagine. And, and I, I can't believe that, you know, there would be any, you know, that, you know, all of this, this, the war still would have happened. I guess that's also your argument. If they hadn't existed at all, you know, um, uh, all of these, you know, millions and millions of people still would have been murdered. So I guess maybe we both agree on that point. No, no, no. But then what I would say... Understand. My, I'm sorry. My argument is that if the intellectuals who believe in the non-aggression principle, of which there have been hundreds if not thousands, right, over the past 150 years, thousands for sure, if the... Do, do you mean just... I'm sorry, uh, let me just interrupt you there, because, um, you know, the, the non-aggression principle, like, you know, the classical liberals, I don't think broadly... You know, they didn't have a stated principle that was where they deduced everything from the non-aggression principle. Um, they had a broad liberal, Mises wrote about it, liberalism, they had a broad liberal outlook. Um, well, sure, they, they I, I preferred you know, less violence to more violence, for sure. Now, yeah, they, okay, they, they, didn't, they didn't believe in it like, as consistently as anarcho-capitalists do. Right, right, for sure. But, uh, and I'm, maybe I'm casting my net too wide, and this is, of course, in no way, shape, or form meant to blame any of the miseries of the world on the intellectuals of the past, because Lord knows I'd be scratching my name on a cave wall if these people hadn't written, right? So I don't mean anything like that. I'm just trying to sort of dispassionately look at at, uh, at the cause and the effect. What my argument is is that if these guys had said, you know what, there is no possibility that we can use violence for good. We can't tame it. We can't control it. We can't manage the state. We can't figure out how to control these uh, guns of the government because we're intellectuals, not politicians, we're intellectuals, not soldiers, and we're never going to win against these guys. They're just going to use us as a shield, right? So you get some moral guy like, you know, Bertrand Russell or, you know, uh, George Bernard Shaw or whatever, and they're all about, ooh, the government is great, let's get more of the government and so on. And of course, the average guy in the street is like, well, I don't know, I guess that sounds good. The intellectuals are saying it. But if all the intellectuals who worked from the non-aggression principle to whatever degree they did had stood up and said, there is no conceivable possibility that a political solution will ever free us. Ever, 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 ever. I'm not going to spoil every ballot. These guys have guns, guns, guns. It's violence, violence, violence. And we have to stop it. This is not a compromise situation. This is not a work within the system situation. This is stone evil, like slavery, like, uh, like child rape, like war, uh, that, like the war of crimes of aggression in war. Uh, like torture. This is not a compromised situation. This is stone evil, and we will stand for none of it. Right? Then that would have filtered through to society, and far all of the energies that get drained out of the intellectual world trying to pursue this political solution is heartbreaking. Right? And it makes the job of anarcho-capitalists infinitely more difficult that people go for political solutions, because then people say, well, I don't want to do anything as extreme as anarcho-capitalism, because there are all these really intelligent people working within the system. So my argument is that it's not the, 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 we'd be a whole lot more free if people had not tried to work within the system and tried to get control of the gun, but had just thundered against it as a moral crime consistently and perpetually. Um, I, I think I would disagree with that, just because you know. I mean, I, I just don't think that if you know if they had said you know, I think that um, they would have been you know spoiling the ballots and um, you know 
certainly if they had had that, that radical outlook, um, you know, that we're just going to say, you know, we're going to try to convince our, our students and everyone we meet that, you know, that the government is not the way that you need to have anarcho capitalism, you need to have, you know, you need to eliminate government, that probably, you know, would have had, I would agree, a, a much, much more beneficial effect than, you know, them trying to, you know, use influence with the politicians they had influence with or whatnot, just because, um, you know, all the students they, they, you know, they, they, um, they taught and all the people they influenced, yes, that, that certainly I think would have had, um, you know, a, a very beneficial influence and probably more so than, you know, the, 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 the limited successes they had with, you know, preventing some initiation of aggression. But the thing I would say is that, you know, that just doesn't, because the, you know, until very recently, there weren't really any anarcho-capitalists. There was, um, there was uh, Malinari, who was, I guess, the, to my knowledge, the first anarcho-capitalist. Um, he was a member of the French, uh, school, of, uh, French school of Economics. That this uh, predates the classicals. Um, also, Say was was you know one of the these, I believe he was one of these French economists, and there was um, a few others. Uh, Bastiat. He wrote a great essay called the, the what is seen and what is not seen. You know, but but Molinari was the most extreme of them and the first anarcho-capitalist. But you know then. You know, between you know Malinari and Murray Rothbard, I, I really don't think there were any anarcho-capitalists. There was um, some anarcho-syndicalists who were not in any way our allies. Um, right. You know, because they also they didn't just hate the state; they they also hated corporations. And we had a anarcho-syndicalist revolution in Spain, which resulted in the imposition of a basically a they they called the government something else, but it was basically a communist uh, government um, because you know someone who's more skilled is not going to accept. Um, you know, getting less, paid less than someone who's less skilled, and you know, people basically. What happened in Spain was that once you got rid of the government, which they, they did, you know, they, for the most, I believe they basically about they they killed everyone in the government. They not the means I would recommend, but you know, they they did it, and then people basically, you know, wanted to have their private property, and the only way to have anarcho syndicalism was to impose it on people. In other words, to get rid of the anarcho part. And then you know, you had um, in in the U.S. you have the individualist anarchists. Um, which would include uh, Tucker and Spooner and um, uh, some others whose names escape me at the moment, who were actually the predecessors of Murray Rothbard. He, 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 got, he combined the, the Austrian school with the individualist anarchists, basically improving upon their flawed economics, because the individualist anarchists were basically socialists in their economics. Um, they thought that you know, collecting uh, interest was immoral, for example. But they didn't think that it should be illegal. So on libertarian grounds, they were basically right. Um, you know, but that's basically an overview of how rare, you know, and Murray Rothbard was the first, I think, the first modern anarcho-capitalist, um, or at least one of them. Right, right. Um, and then from there, you know, it, it, it started from his living room and expanded from there, and, you know, we're all here, and, you know, it's a great testament to, I mean, I guess that kind of, that's kind of your argument, right? It's a great testament of persuasion because um, it started out with one man and the, the entire anarchist movement um, had kind of died, almost, you know, died out and, you know, there, and, um, you know, so it started out with him and then it expanded. But, you know, just, I just don't think that there were enough people who had that, that conviction that we, we cannot have a state and that, that were our natural allies um, in the past. Well, I certainly, um, I certainly sorry know. to interrupt, I certainly do agree with that and, I mean, that's uh, really great, by the way, <laughs> you know, 
it's almost like you've been to the library. That is really that is really great, and I do appreciate that that. And it's certainly not my intention to say, you know, Patui we spit on say is an idiot or you know these kinds of things. I mean, these these guys were all geniuses, and I mean, I certainly wouldn't have two brain cells to rub together without the stuff that was written before. But to sort of wrench the perspective from the past to the future, now I'm sort of trying to suggest or propose that we look at trying to encapsulate the lessons of the past, that political involvement by really able and intelligent and often well-funded people uh, who had a lot of influence, certainly far more influence than you and I, um, failed completely to, to achieve their stated ends and their stated goals. I'm sort of, that's why I'm sort of suggesting that if we look forward, and you know, not to blame the people in the past, because you're right, anarcho-capitalism was very rare. Uh, I actually, if it's of any interest, I actually sort of worked on this sort of stuff. I never even read Murray Rothbard until after I did Freedom Aid Radio, so it's kind of cool to realize that there are other people out there too. But, um, but the, the, um, the, the sort of approach that I'm saying now is that, yeah, of course, we can't blame everybody in the past for not doing the right thing. And even if we could, what does it matter, right? The point of the past is to change the future, learn the past to change the future. And that's why I argue now for non-involvement in the political process and for, you know, a passionate and repetitive and personal and grindingly repetitive at times denunciation of the evils of the state. And for enacting, because, I mean, the fundamental is not anarcho-capitalism and the fundamental is not economics. The fundamental is philosophy and the goal is, is happiness, right? And that's why I really focus on sort of becoming this beacon, right? You can bring anarcho-capitalism to your life, right? You can bring the, because you can bring philosophy to your life. And that means not sanctioning the use of force, not supporting the use of force, not laboring under the delusion that you're doing anything other than legitimizing the state when you participate in the political process. You can't be an abolitionist and own a slave, and you can't be somebody who passionately argues for freedom and participate and try and wrestle control of the political process. It's never going to work anyway. And all it does is undercut the message that you're trying to sell. The state is stone evil, but I'm going to collaborate with it for this practical end. It's like, well, then there's no principles, right? I mean, then principles just become a kind of posture. And I'm not sort of saying that's you. I'm just sort of saying that's the way I see it. And so if we look at this uh, way of, of sort of passionately living the principles not getting involved in political processes, not getting involved in this subterranean, ghastly, satanic evil of the state, but instead uh, really just passionately denouncing it with every ounce of, you know, I'm, I'm sort of feel like I'm standing at a pulpit here, but passionately denouncing it with every ounce of our being, repetitively and not giving an inch and not participating in this muck and mire to the degree that, you know, we can live a life and not do it, then I think we will have learned something, and I think that's the best way to honor the people in the past, right, is, is to look at the things they did that were right, which were innumerable, and to things that the, look at the things they did that were wrong, that did not achieve their stated aim, and try something different, right? I don't think that anybody would be happy in the past to say, well, they're still doing the same stuff that I was doing 200 years later, 100 years later, or 50 years later that didn't work for me, right? So the whole point is to keep comparing what we can do with what worked and didn't work in the past so that we can achieve a different outcome. And just political involvement just doesn't work. Like, just no way, shape, or form. It just, whether it's causal or not, but as it's employed, it just makes everything worse. Well, I, I mean, I would, disagree, again, disagree with, you know, the um, the argument that by voting, uh, we're supporting the initiation of force. I look at it just, uh, you know, as Spoon, I think Spooner did, again, as a, you know, an act of kind of self-defense. Um, and, you know, certainly... Um, I, I know the Spooner quote, and I, I really do hate to interrupt you, but it doesn't work. Right? 
people have been trying to vote self-defense for 150 years and look at the size and power of the state. It doesn't work. Yeah, but um, you see that, that that gets to the the heart of the methodological um, dispute here, which is that um, you know how much worse would things have been, um, you know, if not for the influence of the classical liberals on some um, politicians or whatnot. You know, I mean, because you, you could easily imagine it could be it could be a lot worse. Um, you know, Rudolf Giuliani is uh, at least from everything that I have read, um, is basically is a smarter and more evil version of George Bush. Um, uh, junior, and that that's a, a frightening thought to behold. So you know, um, it's, it's not exactly um, you know. Look, this this wouldn't get me. Uh, you wouldn't get me up from bed to uh, defend. Um, you know, if it was between Rudolph Giuliani and uh, I don't know uh, Obama on the Democratic side, or who, you know, I, I can't, let's say John Kerry, um, if he was if he were running, you know, that wouldn't get me up from bed to to do that. But this is the case where there's some. Um, <coughs> I'm sorry, my apologies, um, where there is a, um, a notable difference in what we will have if we have someone like Rudolph Giuliani or John McCain or Hillary Clinton and someone like Ron Paul. So, I mean, you know, I don't think that it's, it's so categorical you can say that it never, ever works because I've cited some examples where, you know, some things have been done. And then when you talk about, um, you know, just uh, the, the ultimate goal, you know, the, the abolitionists had, you know, had to deal with this. I mean, they used, they were involved in the political process by any means they could to eliminate slavery. And, you know, they were also involved in it in the personal level. There was, you know, the Underground Railroad and there, you know, they, they encouraged, um, you know, any personal measures to eliminate slavery. So that they kind of took a, a multi-pronged approach, and that's what I would argue. Um, now, because I am an anarcho-capitalist, and I realize, look, the, the, you're always going to have, just because you have a state, this is you know something Hoppe has pointed out. You will always have an incentive for externalizing costs um, and you know on others. That's basically what you know anyone in power has an incentive to do that to the extent that um, you know that's an incentive for them. And it's a little bit uh, circular, but you know more for more for moral people, you know it is not uh, the 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 power to murder others or to to impose the cost of your actions and others is not particularly alluring um, because they're moral people. But there is broadly that incentive in the state, and that's why you can have wars, because the politicians don't pay the cost of the war. And, you know, like George Bush doesn't get killed, um, soldiers get killed, and, um, you know, Iraqis get killed, and Americans get killed. But not George Bush or anyone in his family, or it's very unlikely anyways. So, yes, yeah, you know, do you think that you would have voted for Ronald Reagan in 1980, given his uh, commitment to free markets and getting rid of government and lowering taxes and so on? Well, I mean, I, I don't know, because um, I, I don't know too much about what Ronald Reagan did before 1980. Um, I, it's my understanding that he was basically an actor, and then he became a politician. I, I don't know if he was he a congressman before. I would have to see if he had a record yeah, of, um, of resisting the temptation, you know, to... Um, you know, to succumb to political interests and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't say. I would have to, and, you know, maybe you could imagine that, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think he was a, a congressman, but you could imagine that, you know, if, if he had a, a long record, you know, of, um, of, you know, voting on a free market stance and, uh, you know, not, um, you know, engaging in law growing and other things that could benefit him, then, you know, maybe. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, he actually had but, a good uh, record in California of voting and trying to get free market stuff in as much as possible. 
And California has some legacy of that, you know, the sort of Proposition 13 where you have to vote to increase taxes and so on. But, uh, you know, the, the individuals, I mean, frankly, don't matter. I mean, the, the, the state has a massive thunderous logic all to itself, right? These externalization of costs and so on that you talk about, the ability to print money. and It has a logic all of its own. You can't put someone at the front of this thundering train and think that they're going to push it to one side or another, in my view, right? And again, that's just working historically, right? That all the people, and I have no reason to believe that Reagan didn't want to go to Washington to make government smaller, just as he claimed and just as he had... Uh, had uh, promised and so on, right? There's no reason to believe that all of the politicians from, you know, Jefferson to Cleveland, that that they didn't want to go and make the government smaller. There's no reason to believe that they weren't sincere in that desire. But they're never able to do it. Every single time these people come in who really genuinely seem to and believably want to make government smaller, government just gets bigger. And I think we place this amazing faith on these individuals that one guy can do something to change the logic that is based on hundreds of billions of dollars and nuclear weapons and, you know, just a, an astounding uh, Gordian knot of power and control and violence that one guy is going to stand in there and clean up that town. I just, that, that to me is an amazing fantasy because there's just no example of it ever happening. Yes, there's been little pockets here and there, but, you know, so what? I mean, guys dying of cancer rally from time to time. It doesn't mean they're not sick, right? So... It just is this amazing belief that someone can go in there and clean up the town. You know, if we look at the huge shadow of the government behind this sort of tiny individual, I just can't imagine, because it's never occurred in the past, how we could believe that it was going to happen in the future. Well, I mean, um, you know, I I don't have any belief that if Ron Paul were elected president, uh, the government would shrink back to the size it was. um, No, I'm talking about slowing down the growth, not shrinking it. No uh, one's even but, to okay. down the growth. Well, I mean, um, you know, I, I think Lou Rockwell has, has talked about the past hundred years, and um, I think he, he mentioned Jimmy Carter um, as as being, oddly enough, probably the best president we've had over the past hundred years in terms of um, the levels uh, of spending not having having risen really that much relative to other presidencies in his administration and um, keeping us out of wars and that kind of thing. Um, although he wasn't reelected, but um, I mean, look, you know, it's uh, can look, can Ron Paul slow down the growth of government overall? I I don't know, probably not. Let's just say he, if he was elected president, but he does have veto power. I mean, he does have the power, or he would have the power to um, to in in many instances stop um, some initiations of aggression from happening. Which you know are come are drafted in Congress and then they you know log roll and a whole bunch of things get put together. Um, if he if he was president after 9/11, now this is assuming again this is assuming that he holds the same values that he's held to in his congressional career, which has been quite lengthy. Um, if he was president after 9/11, we probably would not have had a, a Patriot Act. Um, well, we, we might you know because he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have. Um, you know, oh, they would have got the encouraged that. They would have got the two thirds after nine eleven for sure. I mean, there's lots yeah, but, which we can but, guess about, but but for sure, given the mood of the country, uh, you know, they would have overridden him for sure. Well, but, yeah, okay. The issue is um, that the I believe you know the Patriot Act was um, you know largely introduced by uh, George Bush and uh, members of his administration. So it's you know the the, the president kind of directs in, in many many times what Congress does um, in terms of you know getting something rolling, you know, so, I mean, you know, Ron Paul would, you know, would not have suggested that kind of a thing. Um, I wouldn't put it down, I mean, you, you don't know. know, but I wouldn't put it down 
to George Bush as having come up with the Patriot Act. I don't think he's quite that bright. I think it was in the works for some time. No, no, certainly, yeah. It was not, you know, George Bush um, who draft, you know, who wrote this, but wrote this, but um, you know, it was uh, certainly approved by him. And then those in his administration, I think, did a lot of work on it. And um, I believe, if I remember right, the reason, one of the reasons Ron Paul uh, voted against it was because he couldn't read it, and neither could anyone else, except for, um, I think, the, the, the head of the, of the Senate and the Congress. Or something. There was a few people in, who could read this thing, and no one else had, had actually read it or had the ability to read right. it. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I think that in, in terms of, in that kind of a way, um, yes, he could have, um, you know, prevented some kind of initiation of aggression. And, you know, also, um, you know, if the other thing you could say is the president is the commander in chief and, you know, we probably would not have responded to 9-11 by, um, you know, going over in, in Iraq, uh, you know, and, and just, um, you know, uh, uh, destroying the country and destroying Afghanistan. Uh, that that would not have been, uh, I don't think, his response. Again, this is this is um, projecting from his what he's done in the Congress. Now, you know, look, uh, you you mentioned the Ronald Reagan example where he had a history as well, and it seemed to be pretty decent. But one thing, you know, I would argue is that, um, you know, I I I don't think that Ronald Reagan was actually familiar with the Austrian School of Economics. He may have read some Hayek and maybe Friedman, and these are, um, you know, the the guys who are kind of—I I don't know how to put it—quasi-libertarians. Um, that's, that's, you know, when most people think of libertarian, they think of Milton Friedman. That, that's that's the unfortunate reality that we're facing is that they think of Milton Friedman, not Murray Rothbard. And you know, Milton Friedman um, is uh, has done—he has some good things that he's written, and um, you know, but his his most prominent influence has been to get the uh, the withholding tax uh, instituted. That that was you know. Right. That's that's to, you know the the most significant thing he's done I I think, and then actually uh, you know he also the other thing that he did was you know he argued against the gold standard and for uh, you know fiat money and and the government managing the level of inflation to make sure that there you know there's a low, uh, even price level and that kind of thing he, you know he thought that you could have a paper money and then as it turns out um, you know he, you know he criticized the Austrians for. You know, for the support of the gold standard, he thought it was basically what what uh, Friedman said. I think in Walter Block quotes him is he, you know, he has a bunch of great quotes on you know gold and how it restrains the government and how you know inflation is dangerous. But then he said that you know it costs money to store gold, so you know we should try to use paper money because that's costless. And the way Walter Block interpreted that is that you know, um, you know, freedom costs you know has a cost, so you know tell of freedom. And that was Milton Friedman's right, like uh, position. Right, choose that they want the additional security of gold rather than the cost of inflation. Right? Yeah, and you know, towards actually before he died, um, Friedman recanted. He said that, in looking back, it probably would have been better if we had a gold standard. So, you know, um, at least he um, he changed his mind on that issue, which is you know, I guess somewhat commendable. Um, right now, uh, but, the only thing that I would sort of say, and, and this maybe could be the last point because I want to keep you up all night, but. The, the sort of last thing that I would say is that if everybody who gets into political office ends up expanding the power of the state, right, then, then only one of two things can be occurring, right? Either A, people um, who want to get rid of, who want to make the state smaller find that they can't make the state smaller and don't want to give up their political power when they get into office, right? So Reagan, maybe he genuinely wanted to make the state smaller, 
But when he got into office, he realized that he couldn't, right? And Schwarzenegger, I think, in California was, you know, vowing to take on the public unions and tackle the deficit. And now he's just turned into another naughty green poster boy for environmental activism because that's a non-controversial thing to do that's not going to get him in trouble with people. But um, so we can assume maybe they want to get in and they they get and they really want to make the government smaller. But then when they get in, they realize that they just can't do it. There's just no conceivable way. It's like if you want to cancel the B-52 program in the United States, uh, it, parts of it are made in each one of the 50 states, right? So, I mean, it's just impossible. Everyone's going to you know, be jumping down your neck. And so you just say, okay, well, I'll be a ribbon cutter and a speech maker, and I'll still make the speeches about, you know, I'd like to reduce government, but, you know, I'll find ways of accounting tricks or whatever, right? They just go for the show rather than the actuality. Or... People who genuinely want, like deep down in their core, genuinely want to make government smaller, sim- simply can't get into government, right? Either it becomes impossible and they just stay in for show, or they can actually do it, in which case they're never allowed into government. But either way, there's no possibility of success for what we want in the political system. Um, I would, you know... <laughs> That that does tend to be a pattern, um, and I think that you know uh, Lou Rockwell wrote, and I, I'm I'm not quoting these people because I you know I want to suggest they're infallible, but I just want to you know um, cite people when I um, take from their ideas. He wrote that a lot of times you know what happens is you know and this is why he doesn't bias going into the political as, a, as being a politician for you know a young anarcho-capitalist is that people go into the political process wanting to change it or into politics wanting to change the government, but in reality, what actually happens is that they get changed themselves, and that's, that's what you described. Um, and, I, you know, look, uh, from just from my point of view, I, I think I don't think that Ron Paul would be another Ronald Reagan if he were elected, because he's had that, you know, he's been in Congress for a while, and he must have realized, you know, that he isn't really, um, you know, his, you know, that, um, you know, he, is, he must have realized that, um, you know, he is not actually rolling back statism by his one vote against, you know, statism every time, you know, he gets outnumbered 501, although sometimes um, there's more people with him depending on the, the issue or whatnot. But, and he still hasn't, he hasn't changed and become um, just another cog in the wheel, so that I would argue that, um, you know, but I, I, I see what you're saying, you know, and uh, even among people like myself who do support Ron Paul, um, if you're, you know, if you if uh, you've been watching this for a while and, you know, you, you you see what happens to people like Alan Greenspan and you see Alan Schwarzenegger and whatnot, you realize that Ron Paul is not, is, um, you know, the exception and not the rule and perhaps a very rare exception. Another one I would mention would be Howard Buffett, um, the father of Warren Buffett. But unfortunately, um, he's hardly known at all and the only time I've ever read an article about him online is titled uh, Warren Buffett's Daddy, which was kind of insulting, I thought. Um, but, you know, there, there are a few of these men in, uh, in, you know, the Senate or the Congress who come along every once in a while who are truly, um, you know, principled. And I do think that if Ron Paul were president, he would at, he would at least um, prevent some statist measures from being implemented. Well, sure. And, and that, doesn't, then he's gonna... that doesn't sound, you know, that doesn't sound too inspiring, but you never know what might happen because of that. And, and from the non-aggression acts and any reduction in you know, the initiation of aggression is a good thing. And, you know, just also because of what we're facing right now, which is the possible, you know, which is basically a, a series of uh, fascist presidents who could be elected, you know, that's, that's the, what's on the menu is, you know, uh, one fascist versus another in terms of Hillary, um, uh, Giuliani, and uh, McCain. 
So right. So if Ron Paul, you know, that, Ron Paul could change something, then he'll never get elected. Right. That's the pattern of the past 220 years. Right. I mean, either you go in and get corrupted, or if you're not going to get corrupted, you never get to go in. I mean, the system is very self-protecting. Right. And that's simply because if Ron Paul were to cut a whole bunch of government spending, right, everybody who was elected would would their, their constituents would just throw them out. Right. Because they're there to get the money back that they have to pay to the federal government and more. Right. If they can. Right. That, that's, you know, the the cycle. Right. Like people donate to a politician. Right. So the, the pharmaceutical companies will donate 10 million dollars to the political parties in return for a billion dollars of profits from the um, prescription drug program. Right. So that's the investment and the return that occurs in the political process. There's no possible way that Ron Paul will be able to cut spending because the whole point, the, the whole reason that people are there and get the funding is so that they can get the spending, right? The, the, the system is, it will never even let him close to the reins of power. If, uh, you know, if, if that's his intention, uh, they will just switch their funding to other people, provide a media blitz, dig up dirt on him, provide negative ads, or whatever, right? Like, the system is very self-protective, right? And that's the problem with violence. When it becomes institutionalized, you can't get in. You just, you can't get in. If you put your stated objections forward and you're going to harm the economic interests of tens of billions of dollars of hundreds of different companies and agencies, uh, they'll just throw all their resources in up to half a, half the money that they would conceivably lose and just swamp you, right? I mean, the system is very self-protective that way. And that's why I say, like, this is no point getting involved. You have to attack it at its core, at its moral justification, at its root. And you can't do that if you're participating. I, I certainly agree the system is uh, very self-protective, so to speak, but that doesn't mean that it's completely impenetrable. There have been some broadly um, classical liberal presidents who have done some good things, although they've had their, their flaws. Well, and um, so, I mean, for a long view, the government has just continued to grow and grow. Again, I wanted to avoid the blips because you can always find the blips, right? I mean, if I'm falling out of a tree uh, and I bounce a few times on the way down, it doesn't mean I can fly, right? So... <laughs> That's that's still a dangerous and bad thing. So you can always find the blips. I'm talking about the long view, though, which we both can clearly admit has been a complete disaster. Yeah, yeah, certainly. But I mean, I'm just saying that you know, um, and this is a matter. I think it's a subjective matter of you know picking a time to to get involved in something, or you know, it's when something seems worthwhile. I think that right now, um, the U.S. is somewhat ripe for someone like Ron Paul. Maybe if not getting elected, at least you know. Some of the points he brings up um, resonate with people, and that that in itself is valuable. You, you can look on, you know, Bill Maher's show, who is a quote unquote. He says he calls himself a libertarian, but he's really more like a socialist. But um, you know, and people there will, you know, just ravingly applause him for his, you know, anti-war views. So I mean, I do think that you know, look, even if he doesn't get elected, um, which you know, quite frankly, there's a better chance of that happening now than ever in the past for him. Um, it, it has some beneficial effect. Um, and I, if I might add a suggestion, I think someone uh, I am me asking if uh, it's possible to ask questions. So I don't know if um, we could have like a, a brief uh, question, you know, time for people to ask questions of either one of us on our position. Sure, I think that would be great. Let me just try and find the old Skypey thing. Da, da. All right, so if we have, uh, yeah, if you have questions, we can take a couple of questions for either myself or um, we'll call her Jenny. Um, Jenny J. Uh, so uh, just uh, click on the Astro mic and uh, we'll uh, be happy to take questions. I hear a little break, which means that... Uh, People seem very interested. Pardon me? <laughs> People seem very interested. Oh, yeah, no, this has definitely been uh, an interesting debate. Hang on one sec. Mics are open. 
type that in the chat window. Uh, we can see then. There is. Ah, okay. Yeah, we have somebody who wants to come in. Uh, and I'm sure he has a question for you. Oh, I can't see him on the list. If you're listening... Is he going to, uh, is he going to ask the question in, um, in voice or type it in? Uh, I think voice. I think voice. Ah, here he is. Okay. I'm just going to put him in. Oh, I think you know who this is. He is the thorn in our side. The gadfly. Uh, Greg, you're on. Hey, what's up? Hi, Greg. How you doing? Not too bad. Okay, now. What was my question? <laughs> <laughs> when can I ask a question? I think that was your question. Uh, oh, um... Actually, that was way, way back at the beginning. Before you got David on. It kind of had nothing to do with what David was saying, but... Maybe if you could limit it to what David was saying, because I think I've had enough chance. <laughs> we can talk about that. <laughs> well, I, I just don't understand, on principle, how anyone could support Ron Paul and be an anarcho-capitalist. How oh, well. anyone, for that matter, could support any candidate and be an anarcho-capitalist on, on principle. Can can you just mention the yeah. principle that you're referring to? Which is the uh, the um, um, the proscription against um, aggression, the use of force, right? Um, well, I mean, I'm glad I'm glad you asked that question, and that's that's a great question. That's actually, I think, what we spent most of our time on the board debating. Um, I just think that uh, from the non-aggression principle. It seems obvious to me that less aggression is, you know, not as bad as more aggression. I don't, I don't want to say better um, because it's not, you know, good that, you know, you're only being uh, beaten up instead of murdered, but it's not as bad that, you know, you're uh, only being beaten up instead of murdered. So that, that's, that's, you know, where I come at it from. And just that, but, you know, any, any reduction in initiation of aggression is good. But, but not as bad is not good. Um, you know, no, no, but, um, you know, certainly, you know, there are uh, something if some of the things Ron Paul would be to do would be good because it would be um, repealing the initiation of aggression, so to speak, uh, in terms of like, for example, pulling out of Iraq. That that's that's something you could say is good. Um, you know, I mean, now maybe you couldn't say overall that the U.S. government is you know is good. You, yeah, you could not say obviously overall the U.S. government is good. You know, after we pull out of Iraq, because it's still initiating aggression, but you can say of a particular action, the secession of aggression in that respect, that's a good thing. Uh, if someone is, you know, is is um, you know stealing from you and beating you up and torturing you and raping you and um, you know killing your sister and whatnot, uh, if they, you know, stop killing your siblings, then you know that is, you know, <laughs> well, I, I guess you know, or let's just say because it's, it's that's not the right way to look at it. Um, it's that that was the right decision. That's good to stop, you know, um, murdering someone if you were doing that, even if, you know, you're still engaging in a bunch of other crimes against them. But the reality is this isn't just like one, you know, super criminal. It's a whole bunch of people. So that's why I can, I think I can say that, you know, some of the things Ron Paul would, would do would be, you could say from a libertarian, you know, from the non-aggression principle are good. You know, pulling out of Iraq is a good thing. I don't think, I just don't see any, 
I mean, I don't see how you could deny but it, it without. It, it's, uh, it's only good if the reason he's pulling out of Iraq is because he's disbanding the army and he's uh, outlawing the entire presidency. It's not good if he's doing it just because he doesn't like to use the army. Because then underlying that, he's still tacitly approving of the fact that one man has control over all of these soldiers. Well, you're, you're making, I think you're making more of an ethical argument there from, uh, in terms of evaluating Ron Paul uh, instead of, um, you know, the actual action. You can say, you know, it's, um, look, I mean, if someone stops um, or refuses to beat you up, whatever the reason is, it's a good thing they didn't beat you up. Um, you know, that, that's just from my point of view. It doesn't matter what the reason is. Now, when talking about them ethically as a person, um, then you can, you can get into that, you know, like, for example, you know, why, why don't, you know, the vast majority of people don't steal, or maybe uh, people who have been convicted of a crime and went to jail, they don't steal again. And if you ask them, why don't you steal, they say, well, because, you know, I don't want to go to jail again. It has nothing to do with, uh, you know, that they, what they did was wrong, but just they don't want to go to jail again. That, that you know, that, you wouldn't say they're a good person because they're not stealing because, you know, they don't want to get caught and punished. But, um, you know, it's, it's still, you know, um, a good thing that they're not stealing. I, I'm not speaking ethically in terms of people. I'm speaking ethically in terms of uh, moral philosophy, in terms of principle. Either the, either the use of aggression is wrong or it's not. Either the use of force is wrong or it's not. And simply re retracting troops from Iraq isn't, um, isn't, I mean, that's not a clear enough statement to me from him that he is against the use of force. All it says is that he's against the use of force in Iraq, but that's not a principled stance. Um, well, you, you could say that, yeah, but, um, I mean, from, from my point of view, it's just, you know, if he takes the troops out of Iraq, then there's going to be, um, you know, there's less people who are going to be murdered, and that in and of itself is a good thing. Now, um, if you start, you're talking, if you start talking about the statement of principles, I mean, I think what his statement of principle is, is that, you know, we should not be um, interfering in, in, in the affairs of the rest of the world and, you know, imposing a military um, dominance on the rest of the world. That, that to me does seem like a fairly strong statement. It's not uh, quite anarcho-capitalist um, because, you know, yes, look from um, the deviations, there's a debate in libert among libertarians about the immigration thing, you know, what do we do in the meantime? And Ron Paul is one of the people siding on the, the, um, against open borders. Um, and evicting the people who are here. Hello. I'm sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Go I, was ahead. Ju I was just saying that that. Sorry, that, that was a tangent. I didn't mean to get off on a tangent. Right, but but I mean, as far as I mean, he, he is also for uh, using force to evict 10 million people from. Uh, the, the, that's his status principle, right? Using force to. So he doesn't use. Force um, can in, you hear me? He doesn't want to use force in Iraq, but he does want to use force against uh, what he would call illegal immigrants within the United States. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, a lot of that. A lot of that got cut out, but I got the I, I got the gist of it, which was the uh, evicting uh, 10 million immigrants. Right. He's not. He is not in principle against the use of force. He's only against the use of force 
in certain circumstances because he's more than willing to support the erection of a fence along the Mexican border and the hiring of additional border patrol and police to patrol that fence and the and the use of taxpayer money to pay for that so he's not he is not in principle against the use of force I see, I see what you're saying there, though. I mean, he has said, uh, I, I think uh, one of you guys uh, referred to him as being a supporter of the non-aggression principle, but obviously inconsistently. Um, I would just say there that, uh, um, you know, Anthony Gregory has said this, and I admire him a lot. Um, he said that, you know, um, if the money is going to be spent, it's better, for example, that it be spent on, um, you know, welfare than warfare. And you know, there, there's just there's a hierarchy of preferences emanating from the non-aggression principle. I think because you know, look, there's um, you know, the, the initial any any taxpayer money that's spent had to have been stolen first, and that's an initiation of aggression. But you know, in my mind, it's just just you know, not murdering people is um, you know, a pretty strong reason you know to to say that that's commendable. But um, now the issue with the immigration thing. Um, I would just say this isn't a, certain people. He's against, uh, but, you know, he's against murdering certain people, but not others. Well, uh, you know, if you're, if you're referring to immigration example, I mean, even uh, you know, deporting immigrants well, he, is not um, is not you know, murder the murder of them. Um, but the, the issue here is, I would just say that you know, um, Ron Paul is obviously on the 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 against the open border stance, but this isn't an open and shut libertarian. Um, I mean, at least within the libertarian community, and I'm talking here anarcho-capitalist, just so we're clear, not, um, you know, I'm not including classical liberals, I'm talking anarcho-capitalist. Um, there is a lot of debate about the immigration position because the way that people like Ron Paul see it is that, um, you know, it, it, they, they see immigrants, um, a lot of immigrants, not all of them, as being kind of like intruders and, you know, using taxpayer services without, you know, having paid for them. Um, or using things paid, paid for by the taxpayers when the taxpayers don't want them to. And they, they see it as kind of like, a, in a sense, an invasion. That's the way they look at it. And they see uh, uh, border control as, um, you know, basically, it's, yes, it's a bad thing the government, you know, controls um, territorial borders as opposed to that being decided by individuals on their own property. But um, they, they look at it as, given that we have the government, what do we do now? And uh, they look at it. This is at the center, I think, of where Ron Paul's contradiction lies, where his contradictions lie, because the implicit reason for the support of the fence, as you've just admitted, is the defense of the welfare state. But Ron Paul also claims to be against the welfare state. So what is the point of supporting the erection of a fence along the border if one of your planks is to eliminate the welfare state. I'm terribly sorry, but a lot of that got cut out. Um, well, why don't you try again, Greg, because uh, it was but, an important question. Uh, yeah, let me, let me restate that. Um, Maybe you could um, you know, t type it as well. There, there seems to be some problems with the, um, the connection here. Let me uh, just make sure all my things are plugged in. I don't know if anyone I'll else I'll turn my microphone off just in case, too, so go ahead, Greg. Okay. Um, can can you hear me now? Do I, yes. Am I okay? So I'm yep. coming in clear now. Um, actually, oh. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You just got cut out again for a second. Um, let me try. 
I don't can know. You, what, uh, can you hear me at all? Uh, is, is it any different coming from my microphone? Well, I, I can hear you, but um, it, it's getting chopped up, and then there's moments of static. I'm thinking it's a connection, some kind of a problem on, on my side. Um, someone, someone on the board said it gets choppy at times. Oh, interesting. I wonder so, if it's uh, a little bit. I'll just try a sort of testing, testing here, and we'll see if that comes through all right or not. Can you hear that okay? Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, I, Hopefully that, that keeps up. I will try. Uh, I will just try paraphrasing Greg's question. Um, if you're going to have a border shutdown because you are concerned about people abusing the welfare state, but one of your other platforms is to get rid of the welfare state, then why do you need the wall? Ah, okay. I, I see the question. Um, I get you know. I guess the uh, the the issue there is just the, it's the the what what until what do you do until then question. Um, you know, uh, what do you do until uh, you get to a situation where you have you've eliminated the welfare state? You know, you just you just um, you know let, uh, you know given that you have it, it's you know you look, approach it from two different levels. One, you want to eliminate it, but two, given that you have it, um, you know wh you know what then? And then that's that's the well, question that he's looking at with in, in terms of immigration, um, well, the well, immigration issue. I mean, in in this theoretical world, he's the president. So why doesn't he just draft legislation to end the welfare state instead of drafting legislation to approve a giant fence? Um, sorry, yeah. Oh, I, I sorry, certainly another would, way of putting it could be that if he's uh, if he has as a platform the uh, deporting of 10 million people, that's going to take quite a while, right, to find them and to deport them, and that's his platform. I can't imagine that finding and deporting 10 million people and the resulting murders that are going to occur from that, right? There's just no way that you can deport 10 million people without some of them shooting back. That deporting 10 million people is going to be faster than getting rid of the welfare state. Doesn't that just mean that there's no possibility, that he knows there's no possibility of getting rid of the welfare state? Um, yeah, I, I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, certainly deporting 10 million people is... Uh, you know, it's it's not something I I just I don't think you could do it in a libertarian way, given that we have the state. Um, you know, the the, the solution to this kind of thing is to have uh, just allow for private um, discrimination in terms of who people associate with in a community covenants. That's why I tend to you know I, I don't think it'd be a great thing. For example, if the U.S. was flooded by, you know, um, immigrants from all over the world in terms of you know um, every different culture and whatnot, and you know these extremists and all that. But um, you know. This is a Mizesian argument. Uh, you know, we have problems. That doesn't mean the state is, uh, you know, can deal with them just because there's a calculation problem. It can't efficiently allocate resources. Um, so that, that my position used to be actually a closed border, a closed border position, not closed border, but against open border position. Um, and it was partly because I saw it as an issue of, uh, you know, property rights. And that's the way Hans Hermann Hoppe sees it. He sees it as an issue of property rights, where, you know, people who you know, uh, don't have a right to use property or using it. And, um, yeah, it, it, when you, um, I, I do think that it would be, in some sense, uh, easier to deal with Im immigration issues and, uh, before the welfare issues. I don't think you're going to get something, you know, where you're, uh, I just don't think you're going to get enough support to be able to deport 10 million immigrants. But you might be able to get something where you can uh, have some uh, more control on the borders or, 
even better yet would be to allow for private, you know, privateers to, to um, you know, that is people who own land on Texas and, and Texas. Well, well, clearly then, clearly then, ending the welfare state would be much easier. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that you know that would be much easier. That that's the, it's, you know, I, I don't know um, if that would be easier than you know dealing with you know taking these measures to. Um, allow people to deal with immigration. I don't support uh, Ron Paul's position on immigration, just to be clear. I think that's, that's wrong. Um, but if you vote for him, you are, you right? Know. Because he's not... Well, no, I mean... He's not going to know what you voted for or against, right? You just get to do a check mark, right? It's a package deal. He won't know that you support yeah. his position on, um, on immigration. He's going to view your vote as a support on the deportation of 10 million people. Um... I yeah, I don't think that you know politicians necessarily, politicians necessarily view a vote as a, a mandate for everything in their platform. But he won't know, um, right? George He'll Bush. have no way of knowing what you approve of or don't. No, no, no. But I'm just saying that you know I I do not think that that is you know uh, the I don't think that it's um it's it's a muddy issue because we have a state and because you know the the issue is with you know people um you know uh, they're being forced association where there otherwise wouldn't be. And there also being the lack of the ability to exclude because of you know the state, but I just don't think that you know the, the kind of immigration controls he proposes is, is the way is, can can deal with that. Nor um, would it be I don't I, I don't think the ethical way to deal with it. Um, the, the ethical way to deal with it would be to eliminate public property. Oh yeah, of course. But um, you know that that of course I support that. But you know um, who knows when if and if ever quite frankly that's going to happen. Now, that's a separate issue. Is you know, um, you know, some libertarians, for example, step. So in the meantime, up. so in the meantime, we we support an expansion of the state because we can't get a contraction of the state. Um, you know, I mean, I'm 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 not exactly sure what you know what I think we should do about the, about that. I, I think the 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 best thing to do is to take some you know. Uh, that would be that would be feasible. That is, we're t talking about things that are feasible in the in the some some semi-immediate term would be to allow people more discretion in terms of um, you know of who they allow on their own property or who they hire, and then also to prevent uh, immigrants from being able to claim public service. That is, illegal immigrants um, being able to claim public it, it, services. It, isn't the most feasible option to just let everyone do whatever they want? Oh yeah, sure, but I mean, but that's just that's just you know not going to happen. I mean, and I'm being realistic here in, in the, the sense that um, you know uh, that that's I, I don't see when that's going to happen. Um, I think the the best hope for you know for that kind of thing happening, quite frankly, would be uh, to to um, build an island in the middle of the ocean out of uh, floating flotation devices. I mean that. Well, David, um, that, that sorry sounds, to interrupt, but wouldn't you agree though that if nobody voted for state, for the state, if everybody spoiled their ballot, that that would be quite a change, right? I mean, yeah, that would certainly, if everyone spoiled their ballots, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what, what that would do. Yeah, it would certainly be quite a change. It would, it would, it would have an influence. But on the other hand, um, you know, there have been, dicta there've been dictators, you know, who, I mean, no one ever voted for them except at, you know, the point of a gun, you know, if that... And, you know, the, the fact that there was really no voluntary support for them at all, even in, in the sense that people, you know, today go to the ballots and vote, 
you know, yeah, but we're, not, we're not, not in that dictatorship at the moment, right? So my concern is that no. when, when I hear people talking about what to do in a realistic or pragmatic way, what they mean is that my moral decisions are based on the moral decisions of other people, right? Because if everyone spoiled their ballots or everyone openly just said, well, the state is just nonsense, I'm not going to participate in this bloody charade, right? If everyone said that, then clearly you'd be on board with that, right? Like you wouldn't be the last person saying, no, let's get Ron Paul in. No, ab- absolutely not. Um, if, 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 you know, I thought that everyone or even a, a great many people would swell their ballots and uh, express disapproval for the state, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be the, the one sitting there saying, no, you know, we ought to, you know, have Ron Paul because, you know, he's going to try to reduce side term. But on the other hand, you know, you ha- there, there has to be, for that kind of... Um, uh, what you're talking about is just an enormous grassroots movement, and if there was that but, kind of a, a broad ideology, but, but then, you can't, you basic, can't, then you know things would be a lot better. But you can't de- do, doing that. Take, you can't determine sorry. what is right or wrong depending on what, like your your actions. You can't determine what is right or wrong in your actions based on what the majority does, right? I mean, what's right and wrong is relative to reality. It's not relative to the collective decisions of other people. Oh well, I mean. See, I, I don't, I don't see the the voting as being, you know, um, pers- necessarily, you know, something that's you know right or wrong. Um, it's just a, a matter of. Um, again, but you just said that you wouldn't do it if you were the only. You, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it because yeah, because I, I would, because in that situation, um, you know, this, it would send an enormous message. Well, actually, you know, my my doing it or not doing it in that kind of situation wouldn't do anything. You know, I mean, what if. Ninety-nine percent of the people uh, decide not to vote. Whether or not I voted, wouldn't you know? Right. And sure. even if we oh, ahead, even if we go from if we even if we go from the logistical standpoint, it costs nobody anything to stop participating. There there are no resources involved in not going to the ballot box. There are no resources involved in not using guns to force people to do things. Right. So there's um, no, there's no, there's 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 nothing stopping it other than people's mental resistance to it. That's it. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. But um, you know, in in this situation uh, right now, um, you know, look, if we had a situation where 99% of the people or everyone just decided to to void their ballot. Um, that would require an enormous um, ideological support for the free market. So, I mean, I, you know, that I don't, and, and I don't so, see how that's... And so because there's not that kind of support, we shouldn't start advocating for it now? We have no, to absolutely. wait until there's 8% no, or 60% or whatever? But it's not going to start no, absolutely. if you don't we do it. It's not going to start, right? It, it doesn't happen somewhere else, right? The change in the world doesn't happen somewhere else, and then we catch the wave. It happens with the decisions that we as individuals make and stick to. So what I'm concerned about, David, is that you say it's the right thing to spoil your ballot or to resist the political process if a lot of other people are doing it too. But that's basing your moral decisions or your decisions about the actions that you're going to take based on what everyone else is doing, right? I think that we can try and be more leadership-oriented in the sense and a little bit less sort of followership-oriented, if that sort of makes sense, and say, well, if it's the right thing to do if everyone else is doing it, then it's the right thing to do, right? It doesn't matter whether 99% or 98% or 2% or nobody else is doing it, right? If it's the right thing to do, 
to not participate in the political process, then it's the right thing to do. And that's what I mean by standing up and, you know, not going with the flow and just saying, well, this is the movement that I'm going to start. The big grassroots movement starts with the decisions that I make and communicate to those around me. I, you know, ethically, I would agree with you if, um, if you were talking about beating someone's head in and, you know, 99% of the people are doing that and I say, okay, because everyone else is doing it, I'm going to beat someone else's head in What do you think is well. going to happen when but he tries I, to deport 10 million people, David? Do you think um, a few heads are going to get beaten in? Yeah, but <laughs> what I'm saying is that, yeah, but, you know, that voting is not the equivalent of beating someone's head in. It's, say uh, I that see you it want as, him um, to do that. That's what the vote means, that you approve of him using force to do what he wants. And you hope that it's going to be what you want. But you have no guarantee of it. And for sure, it's not going to be what the 10 million people who fled tyranny and who are working shitty jobs in America, right? They don't want him to come and deport them, right? So you're imposing your will on them. You're supporting the imposition of his will on them through force. And that's just one of many examples. Right, so there is head bashing that's going on. That's what the vote leads to. You're marking yeah, but, and but, sanctioning, but, but, but it's not my fault. You, you know, I mean that, that the head bashing is going is going on. All I'm presented with is that in this situation, uh, maybe my vote has some influence on who gets elected, and maybe the guy that's going to do less head bashing gets elected. Um, no, he's going to do more you know, so head bashing, not, right? I mean, I don't know if anyone else who's talking about deporting 10 billion people, but it it doesn't matter. Because what if you just started, took a stand and said, I don't support any head bashing. I oppose head bashing on principle. I don't think that slavery can be reformed. Slavery has to be eliminated. Exactly. Well, I mean, I have said, you know, that um, in my view, uh, moving, I do view, you know, if, if we were elected, I would think it would be, um, just my opinion, um, it's going to be less initiation of, I mean, less initiation of aggression than if McCain or any of these other, some of these other candidates were elected. So, I mean, yeah, I, I do support, I, my position is that no head bashing is acceptable, but um, whether or not I, I vote or not vote is, is simply not going to, I mean, if I don't vote, that's not going to send anyone a message. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, I think I've... Well, maybe maybe I've it's a waste of my time. I've you exhausted know. my arsenal of arguments, so, and Greg, did you have anything else to add? No, that was that was essentially my my focus. I'm I'm more into the principle of the argument than into the practicality of it. But well, listen, I certainly do appreciate the um, uh, I certainly do uh, do appreciate the debate. Very interesting and enjoyable. And uh, thanks so much for for coming by and spending a while, <laughs> quite a while with us. I certainly do I do appreciate it, and I hope that we can uh, at least have understood each other's position enough that. Well, I guess we won't need too much board time with it, but at least we can certainly know where where the basic assumptions are that we're working with, so that uh, we can uh, we can be as effective as we can in future debates. Certainly, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you.